Movies and Booze. I'm Moncrief on News Talk. Hello, it's Jarlath Regan in for Sean Moncrief on what might be the best day for the high stool ever in the history of this country. It's that time of the week again. I'm joined by Paul Ryder, Dean McGuinness and Deirdre Malumbi for Movies and Booze. You're all very welcome to the programme, guys. Thank you so much for coming in. Deirdre, before we get into the, the whole thing here, we're in the middle of some huge movie releases. So this week we're not talking about the obvious Oppenheimer and Barbie. We're in that in-betweener stage where those are just about to drop. Mm-hmm. What have you got for us today? Yeah, they're just about to drop. And just last week we would have had Mission Impossible. So it's that awkward time of year where most movies want to kind of avoid <laughs> hitting the cinemas because they're just going to have all their box office revenue stolen. But two documentaries have decided to forge on and definitely we should be going to the movies to check these out. We have, first of all, The Deepest Breath, which is from an Irish filmmaker, Laura McGann. Uh, it takes a deep Deep dive, if you will, into the world of free diving. Had to um, do it, Laura. I had to. I had to. It was there for the taking. <laughs> uh, so we far, uh, follow uh, primarily an Italian free diver, free diver named Alicia Vicini, and a safety diver uh, named Stephen Keenan, who is Irish. And the second documentary I'll be talking about today, Squaring the Circle, this follows the story of Hypnosis, who were actually the group who um, were responsible for some of the most iconic vinyl designs that the music industry has ever seen. Now, I absolutely love a documentary, probably more than I love an Oppenheimer and Barbie movie. So I'm delighted that I'm here today to talk about these. Now, Deirdre doesn't drink. I don't drink. Dean McGuinness is here (laughs) to get Paul Ryder out of his banger. (laughs) Uh, I'm driving down to Shim Satir Theatre tonight for the final show of my tour. But Dean McGuinness is here. I will sniff these beers. What have you got? Well, you you get a huge amount of flavour from smelling. About 80, 90 percent of flavour comes from smelling. We've got um, a, a couple of years ago, I was tasting a beer called Eyinger Maibach. It's a German uh, style of golden strong lager. And I was going to try to do uh, a German beer alongside an Irish beer, but I couldn't find any Irish Bach beers in mm. the market at the time. So I was having an Eyinger Maibach a few weeks ago and decided to have a quick hunt to see if, if things have changed. And thankfully they have. So we've got two Irish uh, German styles of beer, one brewed by Hope Brewing in Hoth. Uh, which is uh, Hope Maybach. And the second one is from Limerick from Treaty City Brewing and it's Treaty City Doppelbach. Okay, brewed German beer brewed in Ireland. It's a German, German style. It's a you, style that originated... Do they originated wear lederhosen around the... <laughs> yeah. Like, what, it's a style that originated in Einbeck in the Middle Ages in the 1200s and then travelled from there down to Bavaria and brewers in Bavaria started brewing Bach beer styles and uh, like any beer, uh, like a style of beer is similar to a style of food. So mm. you can have Chinese food in China, you can also have Chinese food in Ireland. It's, uh, quite, it's quite fitting that Deirdre's here with the deep dive documentaries because this is some <laughs> this is some deep, deep beer loving stuff. Here. The, yeah, these, this, these, these are, are expensive. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, what are we talking per can? High strength beers, so you're going to be up around the four, kind of four plus euro uh, per can because uh, in Ireland, our government has the wonderful idea that they will tax us to the Hilton drink uh, and the tax is directly proportional to the alcohol content. So when you've got a a 7.1% and a 7.5% beer. Dean, they've got to pay for RTE some way. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Paul Ryder, you're here with the showbiz scoop. And oh my God, there's a lot happening. There's so much going on. Like at the moment, I'm kind of robbing some of Deirdre's stuff because if she won't talk about Barbie, I'm going to talk about Barbie. It's got to be talked about. And mostly just about the absolute marketing genius that has been, you know, overtaking the world. And, you know, as we kind of see some of the, from some of the facts and the figures that I have, it's not just been this week, last week and kind of the previous. It's been two years going. Do you know mm, what I mean? Yeah. So there's a huge the kind of building. story there. We can talk about Britney, who's already topped the charts with her brand new book mm. um, before it's even been released. Yeah. Not, not due for release on October 24th. And then, of course, we kind of have to touch on the SAG strike, which is imminently about to shut down. Well, let's start with Barbie, which is Shall not we? a sentence I thought I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, get, let's get into Barbie here. Because well, like you said, this, this machine mm. that obviously Greta Gerwig has lent this thing some kind of hipster cool. But this is a huge money making machine and so timed to precision for us to be on the tip of every tongue and to be in the window of every store. I don't think I've seen anything like it before. Well, I think... At the core of this, something that Nicola Coughlin said that struck me when she was on the red carpet um, last night or the night before, Mm. she said that it's a beautiful film, but like you've just said there, at the core of it, it's a Greta Gerwig film. So it's going to be beautiful, which means that from the off, when they decided who was going to, you know, take Barbie from the dolls that we used to play with, well, I played with, uh, the dolls (laughs) that we used to play with as kids into the big screen for the very, very first time ever, it was going to have to be special and it was going to have to have this almost enormous force behind it to make sure that it worked. And I think the reason why it has to work is because if you go back, say, you know, I'm 36. So when I was when I was eight or nine, the big driving force behind going to see a film was you'd leave the film and leave the cinema and then you'd want to go to the toy store to buy whatever you saw in in mm. like on the film. Yeah. And I think this is why this is so big is because they are not just selling a film. They're selling T-shirts, you know, pyjamas in certain stores. They're selling all the toys that need to be taken off the shelves, you know, in the run up to Christmas. And this is exactly what it is. Um, there was a, a brand consultant who kind of compiled some of, on a viral Twitter thread where he kind of touched on some of the things that they've done over the last couple of months. You're talking Xbox Barbie themed consoles. There's so much in there. Uh, Dreamhouse, which is built in LA, which we've all seen the, the, the pictures of. Um, Barbie Hotel, which was used for cast interviews. There's so but much. Paul, surely, and Deirdre, I bring you in here. Mm-hmm. Surely this is off-putting that like Greta Gerwig, we know from Lady Bird, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's all just peripheral stuff around to distract from the movie in so many yeah. ways. Like I, th- I find all of this and I don't know if you're the same way, Deirdre. It, it nearly makes me not want to go and see it the more the machine kicks in and the more they're like, oh, Xbox Barbie. I'm like, yeah. do I really want to be part of this? Um, I still really want to see it. So. Yeah, I'm going to completely <laughs> I guess disagree there. I, I don't know where you're going, but I'll take your I, ticket I, instead. I do think that it's a lot. Like even um, I, I live just down the road from the Dundrum Shopping Centre and even the elevators, you know how usually they're clear. What they have is they've designed them so that when you're in the elevator, it looks like you're in a Barbie box, mm, yeah. like a box for a toy, which I yeah. think is like really yeah. cute. And I really want to like get in and get someone to take a picture of me in there. But isn't point. there the risk, Deirdre, that this backfires in some ways because we're being a little bit conditioned to be this is the movie. You must see the movie. Mm. And there can be maybe I'm just a bit anti-establishment that I'm a bit like, I won't buy the hype if you tell me I have to do something. Yeah. 
And maybe that's the comedian in me that goes, I'm going the other way. I mean, possibly. But I mean, you know, I, th- I think Paul kind of said it in that, like, you know, we have seen this time and time again. Like, think about all the marketing that goes behind, say, a Star Wars movie and how ridiculous all the merchandising is around those releases, how many toys, how many products are released around those. So even though the Barbie seems like overly saturated, maybe because it's so pink and so immediately yeah. kind of recognisable that way. I'm, I, I don't feel like I personally have been put off by it mm. because it is a bit more extreme than anything we've seen before. But I also kind of respect it in a way that they've really just kind of gone for it. But at that, you know, it will be interesting to see when we um, actually like note the final figures in terms of the box office. Because when you have these huge marketing campaigns, there's a lot of money that you have to make back for the yeah, fact. Sure. And I can't help but think of like an infamous example. This is just one that comes off the top of my head. But something like Dracula Untold, that also had a huge uh, marketing campaign behind it. Now, that was in terms of like advertisement as opposed to like product placement or something like that. But they ended up not really quite making back um, their budget as a result of how big that marketing um, mm. budget actually was in the end. So it'll be interesting to see if the investment actually pays off. But I think it will because I just know so many people who are so excited to see this you movie. You haven't seen it yet. Not and, yet. And you not yet, no. Yet. I think it's a, gener- a generational thing though because it's not just your daughter who's obsessed now with the pink boxes and Dundrum shopping centre. It's everybody over the course of, you know, gay, straight, lesbian, bi, trans, everyone who's followed Barbie on their road up mm-hmm. to it being in the big screen. Everyone's going to want to get a piece a, of this. Ours was a Cindy house, which was the... Uh, <laughs> oh, you're very controversial. Uh, oh, we, you're we, definitely anti that. very much the little <laughs> version had, of Barbie. We had an American girl doll. American girl. Yeah. Right. Girls you have World to get in made New York. an appearance <laughs> in our house, which was not a, a doll. Look, look, the G.I. Joe and the action man that I was left with was so rubbish compared to yeah. the options yeah. you had, Paul, with Barbie. He'll be in the next Barbie movie. Um, <laughs> let's, the other end of this spectrum of movie making mm. is a documentary like The Deepest Breath that you're yeah. bringing us here, Deirdre. Uh, this this is a movie that desperately needs people to go and see it. Me mm-hmm. not going to the Barbie movie is going to have zero impact <laughs> on anyone or anything that's happening in Hollywood. Yeah. But The Deepest Breath on Netflix out today is a movie that people need to shout from the rooftops to encourage the people that have spent all of their savings on getting made, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, it's not on Netflix today. It's actually on Netflix next Wednesday, but it's in cinemas today. So basically what a lot of um, these Netflix movies are doing, particularly, you know, in the case of The Deepest Breath, it has like the Irish connection, which is why it's mm. getting an Irish, um, a, a limited um, Irish cinema release. Um, but you'll find this with a few Netflix movies, say some of their like bigger, you know, action movies starring the likes of Gal Gadot or Dwayne Johnson. Sometimes they get a limited cinema release before going to Netflix. Um, But this, you know, window does do a lot for those uh, movies and the filmmakers behind them to support them. So I do hope that people will go see The Deepest Breath on the big screen because it's made for that. We're going to talk about it after the break. I want to hold it because I am so excited about this documentary. Let's go to Dean now and find out what of these super rich Bach beers he's going to be putting down Paul's throat now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was starting with the Hope My Bach. So the Bach beer style mentioned earlier on originally developed in Einbeck uh, and there's different ideas as to where the, the style came from but uh, the name of the style came from but the most common uh, story is that it's a, 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 a kind of an, abbrevi- an abbreviation of the town that the the style comes from, uh, the Einbeck town. And this is what I'm holding in my hand right now. That's it, yeah. 
So um, it's a lager, so it's going to be a, a bit cleaner, but got lots of malt flavour, quite an amount of continental hop character. And then the uh, the strength of it is reasonably distinctive as you're drinking it. You're right about a lot of the flavour coming through in the sniff test, right? Yeah. This, yeah. this is pungent, yes, as yeah. uh, Ron Burgundy would say. It You'll stings the nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get now. Um, uh, in terms of flavour, there there are really only five flavours that we pick up on our tongue. We pick up sweet, salt, uh, bitter, uh, savoury, or umami, and uh, sour or acidic. Mm. Everything else, the other ten, twenty thousand flavours that we can pick up, we pick up in our nose. And when we think we're picking it up in our mouth, what's happening is that volatiles from our mouth are going back up back up into our nose, through our throat, wow. and we're picking it up there. So you, you will pick up a huge amount of the flavour in your nose but uh, just by smelling it. Um, now, ironically as well, one of the flavours in this that you'll pick up on tasting is a kind of a honey sweetness. And um, sometimes when you smell that honey sweetness, you'll get the memory of honey being sweet. So you'll think that you're smelling sweetness, even though you're not really Some smelling of it is sweetness. you saying the word honey made me in that little sip that I took there. I don't know if you were the same. Yeah, I got that. I, I just got, got that. a bit of sweet there. Yeah. 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 But this is not a beer that you're going to be down and six off. <laughs> this is a sipper. This is, I, I spend my entire life trying to get across an idea of drink less, drink better. Yeah. Uh, so um, th- there is a, a kind of a philosophy in Ireland. In, in fact, I was at a, an event where we had some shimmy uh, 8% beer on draft and a guy came up and said, oh, give me a pint of that. And I was there, well, no, it's it's shimmy, it's 8%. We only like serve it in half pints. Okay, give me two half pints. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Couldn't get his head around the idea of not having a pint of beer. So Um, what do you you think uh, yourself in terms of rating this? They have done a very good job on this on the style. What you're looking at is a richer lager than people would normally be used to. So it's almost double the strength of an Irish beer. Mm. Irish beer is typically around 4.3%. This is up at 7.1%. Sorry, 7.5, my apologies, um, for it. So it's quite a strong beer. Uh, a lot of richness because when they've got more strength in the beer, they have more opportunity to get more ingredients into the beer. So there's a, a very, very solid malt backbone to the beer. And that comes through as kind of Malteser, um, uh, honeycomb sweetness, honey uh, sweetness, and then a good uh, continental hop character. There's comes. eating and drinking on it. Is there not? <laughs> dessert and a dinner. It feels like there's a, there's just so much happening in this beer. It is, yeah. It's, 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 a kind, like, it, it's not a kind of a, 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 a try to drink a pint of it because you're you're parched thirsty. with thirsty. You, 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 <laughs> you drink and sip it and enjoy the flavour of it. Um, uh, but a clean finish, a good bit of bitterness in it to balance out the sweetness. And yeah, no, they've done a very good job up in Hope. Okay, Hopkins. fantastic. Paul, what's your verdict? I need to... I love it. I'm a beer drinker. My biggest question is, Dean, what is the, what is the general percentage between a normal beer to the 7.1? So what would you find in like a general beer that you'd get in a pub? In Ireland, typically most beers are 4.3%, sometimes wow. about 4.1% or 3.9% on draft. Um, and that's unusual as well, because in Ireland, we have two things. First of all, uh, we have a reputation for being session drinkers. Um, but the imperial pint is 20% larger than the American pint. Uh, so an, a pint in Ireland is 568 millilitres, whereas in the States it's 473 millilitres. So when you get a pint of beer in Ireland, you're getting 20% more liquid. What they've done is they've reduced the ABV compared to other countries by about 20%. Mm-hmm. 
How much are we talking, Dean? Just price over, over the four euros, four to four fifty. It'll be in the independent uh, stores, so the price will vary a bit, but four to four fifty for a can. We have loads more movies and booze after the break. Movies and booze on Moncrief on News Talk. Talk about the, the feeling on the body of the pressure. The deeper I'm diving, the pressure compresses the air in my lungs till uh, my lungs are the size of my fist. After 30 meters, the pressure pushes me down. It's called the free fall, and this is for me the best part. It feels like you are flying. The silence, it's unique. It's like being in the last quiet place on the earth. Wow, that's the deepest breath on Netflix today. Laura McGann is the Irish filmmaker behind it. Deirdre, tell us a bit more about this movie and what this woman is describing. Yeah, so primarily we're following an an Italian free diver named Alicia Vicini, as well as an Irish safety diver named Stephen Keenan. And initially we're kind of following those two storylines separately. And eventually they do uh, come together. They meet each other in a competition and they decide to kind of team up to take on these extraordinary feats and try to set a few uh, world records together. So Alicia, from the age of about 13 years old, she absolutely loves uh, free diving. Um, So we see her, you know, attempt to set all these world records. She's absolutely intoxicated, absolutely loves um, the sport of free diving. And then we so follow... just stop you there one second, mm-hmm. Deirdre. Free diving, just yes. for those that don't know, to just to contextualise it, yeah. it, is diving to these insane depths mm-hmm. without any oxygen with you whatsoever. That's right, on a single breath. breath. So yeah. occasionally they will have a fin to assist them and then other times they won't. And if you look um, up, say, the you know Wikipedia page on free diving or whatever, you'll see that there are all different types of world records depending on whether they used a fin. Some uh, free dives have been set in a pool, which is obviously a very different kind of environment mm-hmm. to, um, you know, the sea environment that was described there in the clip. Um, so it is, it's a extremely dangerous sport. In fact, in the very opening of the documentary, we see Alicia, who has just um, surfaced, having attempted a free dive, and she nearly kind of faints and she goes into a state of shock. It's kind of frightening to see her eyes are bulging. She's losing consciousness. Um, so the danger that is involved in this uh, sport is established from early on. I mean, people have died doing free diving and they talk about, you know, people who have died, be it like competitively or kind of um, recreationally. Yeah. Exactly. Who have... Um, yeah, so it's it's very, yeah, I mean, very I interviewed Claire Walsh, who's the famous Irish free mm-hmm. diver about it. And I, I mean, she was always comparing it to, you know, equestrian events where people are yeah. forever, you know, suffering atrocious injuries, catastrophic mm-hmm. brain injuries that she believed it to be quite safe, relatively yeah. speaking. But yeah. Early doors in this documentary, mm-hmm. they 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 have to set that out. Yeah. That This is the linchpin of the whole documentary, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what the documentary does eventually kind of lead to, and I don't want to give anything away here, and I would urge people to kind of not look up too much about this Mm. documentary before seeing it, because it kind of... um, it kind of develops in a very kind of appropriate way, given the emotional gravitas of eventually where this story um, leads to. But there is a tragedy that um, tops off the whole thing, and it is really quite... um, 
quite uh, upsetting to see. Mm, yes, there is a warning with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think, like I said, because that is kind of established from the opening and they talk throughout about how dangerous this sport is, like some of the people who are, um, say, interviewed for uh, this documentary are like the fathers of Alicia and Stephen. And they talk about the fact that they really didn't want their children to be pursuing this sport because, uh, as you can imagine, what parent would, you know? Yeah. As a documentary, though, and I mean, we are in an age of, well, I guess we've moved past the age. I remember uh, March of the Penguins being the Mm -hmm. first one that really went into the cinemas, did huge numbers. This is a Netflix original, is Mm -hmm. it? So it's it's a very small budget piece. And it literally just covers these two people as Mm -hmm. such. Uh, Where does it fit in your view of the great documentaries that have been made around these niche sports in the last 10 years? I think that it would be really up there because I just didn't know that much about, you know, free diving before um, seeing this documentary. But it's really kind of the personalities behind this uh, story that really make it kind of bring it up to another level. Because aside from Alicia, I think that Stephen makes for a really kind of compelling documentary subject as well. His story is completely different in that he's a bit of a lad. He leaves his native Ireland to kind of go around the world and be something of a free spirit. And he doesn't really know what he's doing with his life. And then he, you know, finds this world of uh, free diving and he particularly becomes uh, drawn to being a uh, safety diver. And he really becomes quite an inspiration in his field. He's very professional. He's thorough. We hear about some of his heroic endeavours, how he like actually, you know, saves free divers in competition. So it's really quite extraordinary learning about these two people. And when their stories actually coalesce, there's something quite magical that happens. Aside from that, the actual footage, which is taken from um actual divers. It's just extraordinary to look Mm. at. I mean, a lot of it, um, particularly when it's, you know, beneath the ocean surfaces, there's something kind of still and calming about it and yet eerie and threatening. And I think that that's what Alicia was kind of talking about in that uh, clip we would have heard there. So if you are away with the family on the holiday and the kids are going bananas throughout the day, this might be the perfect documentary in the evening just to return to that <laughs> zen quiet beneath the ocean. I, I, I get they get the reputation of being crazy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the label that gets put on these people is yeah. inverted commas crazy because who goes that deep under the water yeah. without any help? But there is there is safety people down there with them. Should they call for it? Is there a safety signal they can make to get air to them? Um, Well, a lot of the free divers won't signal for safety because if they if they do that, basically their dive will be completely discounted. So a lot of them try to kind of make it to the top of the surface. And you see if they lose consciousness or if they see any kind of distress, they have to kind of show a thumbs up. They have to hold themselves Mm. up for a certain amount of time for their dive to actually count. So so they're very kind of strict with ensuring that people are safe when they do these activities. And uh, like I said, Stephen was really kind of, uh, you know, at the forefront in um, ensuring all of these things. But yeah, it was just it's just such a different type of story. And there's a lot of kind of um, there's a lot of beauty to it. I don't know. It's it, I just well, find it like in. incredibly compelling. No, I'm all in, Deirdre. I love uh, and good niche sports mm-hmm. uh, documentary. Uh, the reason why I bring up the crazy label is because of your next story, uh, Paul, around Britney Spears, who was yes. dismissed for so long as just crazy Britney Spears until... You know, we learned exactly what situation she was living in. Is this book that she's just about to release, as you mentioned, that's soaring to the top Mm. of the charts 
about that coercive control, that situation that she found herself in? I think before the conversation of mental health matters, we all just kind of perceived her to be crazy. We didn't actually take into consideration that Britney Spears, who has been a pop star since she was an absolute child, literally like came out of the womb and was shoved in front of in front of millions of people. Um, we all just kind of went, oh, she's gone a bit mad. She's gone a bit crazy. And then as, as years have gone on and, you know, we talked about conversations about mental health matters and her conservatorship, which was held by her father and her her people, we'll say, inverted commas, for 14 years. As we know, in the last two years, she's now been released from that. And this is her telling the story. You know, from the tagline, it says she is going to go into her marriages, estrangement from her children. We've seen some talk about her children, about how she has has an estrangement from both of her kids and the controversial conservatorship. And of course, she wants to talk about the infamous head shaving incident and what led to that. The book is due for release on October 24th. It's called The Woman in Me. The front cover just looks like a general old Britney Spears um, album cover. It's her with very little on and she's kind of showing us everything. She's bearing her soul. And that's actually, I think, what essentially this book is about, is bearing her soul. She took to her Instagram in what can only be described as a typical kind of Britney, you know, it is. It, it seems a bit kind of like, oh, is she okay? Like, does mm. she seem okay? But that's just how she talks. It's always how she talks. It's how she's talked for, for many, many <laughs> years. And this, she seems more free. But she kind of said, she said, she started to say, I had a lot of, and you know when you think she's going to say, I had a lot of help to write this book. But no, mm. she's very open and honest and said, I had a lot of therapy to let this mm. book happen. And that's exactly what she's done. You know, October 24th, is only around the corner. Um, it's the top of the Amazon bestsellers. It has a price tag of about $36. Excuse my ignorance, but I don't know what that is in euros. I, I can't even think whether it's less or more, maybe. Do we even get to see a sample? There's no sample yet. But I mean, you can only imagine. My biggest, is my it? biggest question is, how is she going to market this? Because putting her in front of an interview, interview situation has proven to be a little bit tempestuous at times. So is it all going to be Oprah? I know mm. Oprah has vowed and vied for that one-time mm-hmm. interview in only, in the only the way Oprah can, with a load of money on the table. Um, or is it going to go some somewhere else? We just kind of don't know. But Sounds like she doesn't need any marketing for this. I don't think she does. I really don't think she does. It's top of the Amazon bestseller list. My biggest question was, and I tweeted this out yesterday, because I'm an audible person. I listen to books. I don't, I don't necessarily read because I'm on the road a lot, so mm-hmm. I like to have it in the car. Will we hear Britney Spears read this yeah. book? Because that's my biggest thing. And then somebody tweeted me back and said, bet you AI do it. And I was like, oh my God, no, please. <laughs> please, please, please. But the other side of that scandal is her sister, Jamie Lynn. Um, because obviously Britney turned completely away from her family over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. She's been very vocal online about how she feels about them. Jamie Lynn's book, which she wrote quite a couple of years ago, which was called Things I Should Have Said. I've listened to it myself. Didn't really touch that much on Britney, a little bit about their, their childhood and certain aspects that she kind of alluded to in this mm. in this relationship. Um, but Britney's been very vocal, we'll say, about her sister online about that book. And it's now being sold for dollars in yeah. bargain stores. And everyone's kind of saying, well, there you go. You tried to cash in on the Spears on the Spears fortune and it hasn't gone your way. So Britney might have difficulty finding an actor to do the reading the of this book because of what's happening with SAG at the moment. Yes, this is the other thing. We just don't know what's actually going to happen because we're now three months into the American writer's strike. It now looks like the Screen Actors Guild are going to join. I think actually as of yesterday, that is the truth. Yeah, um, Killian walked out of the premiere. We saw them walk out of the premiere of Oppenheimer. My biggest worry here is what was to come, which is now no longer going to come. And Deirdre, you'll, you'll kind of feel this as well because mm-hmm. 
things that we were so excited to see were we might not be seeing for 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 quite some time. A lot of stuff went into quick production. Um, Sky drama Mary and George starring Julianne Moore. They completed their their uh, shoot earlier this summer. Season two of um, The Rings of Power, which is obviously based on on the mm. um, Lord of the One Rings. Of my son's favourites. That's yeah. wrapped now a few weeks back because people were rushing this so quickly in order to get it done and get it out, which kind of stresses me out a little bit because you really want that air yeah, time to breathe to be taken. and yeah. to let that happen. So obviously post-production goes into now. But um, season three of White Lotus, which was slated to shoot in Thailand, it's pretty much not going to happen. One that I was really excited for, I'm a horror buff and a sci-fi buff, FX's Alien series by Ridley Scott. That looks like that's going to be held, both being filmed in Thailand as well, that and White Lotus. So it looks like everything's now just going to go completely on hold and that could also affect the market in the UK as well. Paul, we all know it's all about money. Mm-hmm. But how does it resolve? I mean, in some ways, people need to save face. There needs to be a, a resolution that's happy for everyone. But really, it's pretty black and white, is mm. it not? We need more money and you're paying it to your CEOs and not to people that actually need it. Mm. I, it's hard to see this not dragging on and on. It's a weird one because sometimes you see that they need their big star and they need the big name, which means that they need the money to pay for that. But then there's been other instances where, you know, say, for example, again, I'm a horror buff, so I'm going to bring it up. Scream, the latest Scream installment, which happened last year, didn't see Nev Campbell, who has been their leading lady for five movies. That has done the best of every single Scream franchise known to man without its lead lady. I don't think that's the right way about it to recast people because some of these people, a lot of these people deserve the money that they that they get. I think eventually, because it's about to fall on its knees, the whole industry is about to fall on its knees. So I think that they will find a middle ground. It's just whether everybody's happy to keep moving forward. But this could be six months to a year of a mm. battle down the line. You, what do you think, Deirdre? Yeah, six months to a year? Is that your prediction or do you think oh, that... I'm, I'm, I'm worried because that's what we said about the pandemic and we know yeah, that yeah. went on and Don't on. Don't bring that up. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, it, but I think that it could very much affect uh, both movie and TV production. Yeah. Um, and we might see a lot of series, like say ones that might have just gotten a new season barely commissioned, those just be like cut all together now. The public is always going to be central to this and I'm just not sure how much public sympathy there is just yet. Now, I could be gauging this all wrong, but I definitely need them to stop making some stuff so that I can catch up on all the stuff. You're so that right. I'm meant to be watching. Yeah. You're actually so right. One of the one of the bigger ones, you know, Paul Mescal, Pedro Pascal, Gladiator 2, that's also in its pre-production. You're kind of going, "Oh no, I really wanted I really wanted to watch that." Yeah. But the reason you're, you're so right there's, there's time that I just kind of want to go just slow down everybody because I'm still catching up on yeah, X, Y, and Z. I... Movies and booze on Moncrief on News Talk.